Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. Welcome to Part 12. Today's installment will be a brief departure from our look at Genesis so we can examine the role of the archaeologist and archaeology in understanding the Old Testament. One reason why I've chosen this particular point to do this little field trip is because we are approaching a point in the Old Testament where the archaeological record becomes more and more important. Archaeology is sometimes defined tongue-in-cheek as the art of moving mountains with a toothbrush and a teaspoon. As you might expect, there is a grain of truth in that quip. Modern archaeology is hard, painstaking, generally tedious work, but this kind of care is vital to the process. Once you disassemble a site, you can't put it back together again. The archaeologist must know exactly where every piece of it came from and how it all fits together. The context of each artifact is what gives it significance and meaning from a scientific perspective. For this reason, archaeology is also sometimes described as the only science that destroys its evidence even as it collects it. To put it another way, this is a science in which there is no way to repeat an experiment. Moreover, later scholars are going to be limited by the competence of a given excavation. Some cities, for example, were excavated in the late 19th century when modern archaeology was in its infancy, so the quality of the work is much lower. Some very important cities have been worked for decades by successive teams of archaeologists, but if you're studying one of those cities that isn't so fortunate, the lower quality work is what you're stuck with. This helps explain why the trade in illegal antiquities is so destructive to the archaeological record. Wrenched from their context, the looted pieces that show up on the antiquities market have little or no scientific value. They could even be forgeries for all anyone knows, and sometimes they are. The market in illicit antiquities is huge and unfortunately got a large boost from the recent Iraq war where wildcat archaeology continues to this day. More recently, the Syrian conflict has created another flood of illegal artifacts. Modern archaeology has developed into a very multidisciplinary science. A typical team working on an excavation can include specialists in chemical analysis, geology, human forensics, animal husbandry, engineering, botany, and cultural anthropology to assist in squeezing every last drop of data from each find, and to assist the project leader in working through the site. Since excavating an entire site is impractical, only the part that does see the light of day will tell its story about the people who lived there. Ideally, that story will be representative of the rest of the site that remains under the ground. This brings up another point, which is that the archaeologist must have something to work on. By that I mean that it is much easier to extract findings from a village or a city than from a nomad's camp, assuming you can even find it in the first place. If an ancient people didn't leave much behind, and if what they did leave behind was relatively perishable, you won't find much to testify of their existence. With a few exceptions, 
the conclusions of the archaeologist tend to the general rather than the specific. For example, one can tell much about a site by the kinds of pottery fragments or sherds found there. Incidentally, this kind of evidence is called typology in archaeology and applies to more than just pottery. Ancient Near Eastern archaeology has developed a very sophisticated profile of different kinds of pottery and, in many cases, just by the pottery alone, a site can sometimes be dated to within a couple of decades. But that is still not terribly specific. We can often tell what kinds of people lived there, their ethnic groups, what they ate, how long they lived, and so on, by the kinds of artifacts we find, but, as before, those are fairly general conclusions. When you find something in writing, however, that can change everything. It could be something as simple as a coin, but that coin can serve as a linchpin for dating a site, or a single line of text that identifies the name of the city. You might find an inscription from crude graffiti to an official proclamation, or even a palace archive of clay tablets that will keep scholars busy for many decades to come. To unearth written records is to strike archaeological gold. One of the key principles of archaeology is stratigraphy. The idea is simple enough. As the occupation of a site goes on, the old stuff gets buried under the new stuff. In other words, the further down you go, the older the material you will find. Now, there are circumstances that create exceptions. For instance, someone living in a later time might dig a storage pit that crosses several layers, or horizons as archaeologists call them. A flood could wash away a layer or bury it under a thick blanket of silt. But the general trend is to build upwards. A good illustration of this is the phenomenon of the tell, which is an Arabic word meaning hill or mound. Mounds in the middle of a plain that have no geological business being there are probably the remains of a city. Mesopotamian cities are especially prone to forming tells. Here's how it works. You build a city out of sun-dried mud brick, but, like many ancient cities, there isn't an efficient way to get rid of trash and whatnot. So you throw it into the street. Mud brick tends to deteriorate, which adds to the stuff in the street. Gradually, the level of the street rises until it's higher than the threshold to your front door. So you build up the floor and your house accordingly. If you continue this process for a few centuries, you end up with a very impressive-looking city height that's built like a layer cake, rising above the plain. Another reason for finding cities upon cities is that good sites for cities and villages, with access to fresh water and arable land, for instance, are hard to come by, so they get reused by successive cultures and populations. One layer of occupation will sit atop another and another and so on. A related phenomenon is that sacred sites for holy places, especially temples, will get used for the similar reason, even though succeeding buildings may have nothing to do theologically with their predecessors. It's just that once someone decides a site is sacred, there's a tendency for everyone else to regard it in the same way. The archaeologist is not the daring, dashing figure from the movies, although any seasoned archaeologist can regale you with 
tales of adventure from their work in the field. And if you seek adventures yourself, you can spend a dusty, sweaty summer living a Spartan existence doing archaeology thanks to programs that let you volunteer on actual excavations. It's not exactly heroic, but it can be quite an adventure. Speaking of adventure, although I cringe at the methodology of a certain big-screen archaeologist, I will be eternally grateful to that character for making the study of antiquities permanently cool. When it comes to the Bible, it's only a matter of time before someone asks whether biblical archaeology proves or disproves the Bible. Well, that depends on what you mean by proof. Archaeologists have found evidence that sheds light on the history of the Israelites and on the peoples among whom they lived and fought and traded. They have identified many biblical cities, some of them lost for centuries. There is textual evidence outside the biblical record for a number of Israelite kings and non-Israelite personalities mentioned in the Bible. Archaeology tells us a great deal that is not in the Bible, but is not necessarily in conflict with it. And it has raised some difficult problems that directly conflict with the biblical narrative. One problem that crops up is the question of evidence. There is a saying we hear a lot these days, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Well, yes and no. The accident of discovery means that it may take a while to find clear evidence that bears on an important question, but if something was in fact absent, you won't find anything. To put it another way, absence of evidence is, well, the absence of evidence. It means that unless one has something to go on, you can't be dogmatic about the issue one way or the other, despite the burning desire to advance a conclusion. We see this a lot with certain schools of thought in which a famous character or city from the past has no clear material evidence for their existence, so the historical or scholarly community will conclude from this lack of evidence that said character never existed, when it's much better to say that there's no clear proof one way or the other. A good example of this is the Tel Dan inscription that was discovered in the 1993-94 excavation season in northern Israel. It contains the first clear reference to the House of David. This caused some consternation among scholars of a minimalist school who, on the basis of a lack of physical evidence for a royal court of David, tended to reduce David to a local chieftain or even deny his existence altogether. To add to the controversy, in July of 2013, the Israeli Antiquities Authority announced the news that they had found what they believed to be King David's palace at a site called Kirbet Kiafa. Time will tell whether this conclusion holds up, but it lends credence to giving the Bible the benefit of the doubt, or at least withholding judgment on the big historical questions. Apart from the stories that are clearly metaphors, or couched in mythical language, one should beware of insisting that some figures are mythical 
merely for lack of evidence. On the other hand, there are some troubling gaps in the Bible's archaeological record, but not for lack of looking. One of the more famous is the city of Jericho, which has been quite thoroughly excavated, starting with the work of pioneer archaeologist Kathleen Kenyon. Her work on the city demonstrated fairly conclusively that, during the time normally associated with the conquest of the land of Canaan by the Israelites, Jericho was unoccupied. This leads to the conclusion that there was no siege by the Israelites, miraculous or otherwise, as the Bible records. In fact, the Exodus itself is quite problematic from an archaeological standpoint, as the evidence we expect to find based on the book of Exodus simply does not appear in the stratigraphic record. We'll cover this in greater depth when we come to the Exodus, and I'm giving this little primer on biblical archaeology at this point in our series for that very reason. While we're on the subject, I should say something about how dates are fixed. I've already mentioned inscriptional evidence and coinage and pottery, but the big one everyone has heard of is dating based on the decay of radioactive carbon-14, which occurs in certain forms of organic matter. Charcoal from a fire is an excellent means to date a site using this method, as is leather or unburned wood. Unburned bone was once thought to be a poor basis for carbon dating, but this has changed with the use of newer techniques. Carbon dating can give reliable dates for items as old as 58,000 to 62,000 years. There is some degree of error which increases with the age of the material, but given that the biblical world is not more than a mere 5,000 years old at most, carbon dates are pretty reliable assuming the samples are properly collected and handled. In spite of many instances in which the archaeologist has shed light on the Bible and its environment, not everyone has been happy with those results. The early mandate of biblical archaeology to prove the historicity of the Bible led to the creation of various departments at universities across the United States, many of them funded by religious bodies and organizations. However, as archaeologists failed to confirm the existence of personalities such as Abraham or Moses or other famous names of the Bible, interest waned and in some cases turned to outright hostility. Today, there is only one university chair of biblical archaeology left in the United States, located at Harvard. In Israel, the vast bulk of archaeological work is done by the Israeli Antiquities Authority. For many readers of the Bible, it's the miraculous that matters. The value of the Bible rests, disproportionately in my opinion, on the literalness of the events recorded in it. The God of the Old Testament is explicitly a God who acts in history and intervenes on behalf of believers and his chosen people. In my view, this insistence on literal historicity is just as cumbersome and difficult as the inclination to assume non-historicity for the simple reason that it misses the Bible's point. The Bible uses stories and narratives, both historical and mythical, not to prove a point, but to make a point. When it tells of Moses at Sinai, the point is not to prove that the event actually took place, but to make the point that Israel's national integrity, identity, and core values stems from its legal code. For the national life of Israel, this is ultimately more important than the historical details, or lack of them. 
But if that's the case, why bother with archaeology at all? One reason is that it helps us to see that the Bible itself has layers not unlike an archaeological site. For example, there is much in the stories of the patriarchs in Genesis that is consistent with the world of the early Bronze Age. But at the same time, there are additions and refinements that are more typical of later eras, especially the time of the monarchy. This hardly disproves the Bible, but it does show that the text itself has a history, and a very deeply textured one at that, in which each body of tradition adds its bit to the final product. Another example concerns the elaborate descriptions of the temple vessels and furniture in the Book of Numbers that the text associates with the tabernacle in the wilderness. These descriptions include an accounting of the means used to transport them, which would be hopelessly inadequate given the sheer weight and bulk of what's described. In fact, it's pretty clear that what we are seeing is a description of the temple goods from Solomon's temple, which was reflected back onto the temple's precursor from the years in the wilderness. And it's entirely possible that the extent of Solomon's temple treasury was exaggerated. If so, it wouldn't be the first time that's happened. But the real value of archaeology, from my perspective, is what it tells us about the daily lives and culture of the people of the ancient Near East. Knowing such mundane but indispensable things as what kinds of houses they built, how they farmed, what they ate, their state of health, how they buried their dead, the midden heaps where they discarded their trash, and the burn layers that signaled the violent death of a city, all make up part of a larger tapestry that may not do much to make the Bible historical, but it does make the Bible more human and more alive. We will return to this subject with greater frequency as we continue this series. I hope this gives you a very general sense of what the science of archaeology can and cannot do. Next time, we'll continue our exploration of Genesis with the story of Joseph and the story of how the Israelite tribes became slaves in Egypt. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament. Music